Before we begin the lesson, let me give you some late updates uh, that we did not get to Tom. I had a call from Preston that Tina will be in ICU through tomorrow. They are going to keep her in ICU. She's doing well, but uh, they want to keep her in, in ICU, so she will not be moved to a room. She will be in ICU at Erlanger till, uh, uh, through tomorrow, until tomorrow at least. Also, I had a text from Christy Jackson that um, Wade they got a steroid shot, and they did uh, x-rays of the hip and shoulder and uh, another area I can't remember for sure, which, uh, but they are waiting the results of those. But he did think the shot had helped and that he was uh, uh, doing better, feeling somewhat better. Uh, that was the latest on him. Then we learned, too, this afternoon, uh, Steve sent me a text. They were at Erlanger Emergency with uh, Ella's mother, June Gray. Uh, she has an abdominal, uh, an infection that is producing abdominal bleeding. They thought she had had a stroke, but they've determined it is not a stroke. But uh, she is um, in ICU uh, at Erlanger at this time. So please uh, remember her uh, in your prayers. So those are some late... Uh, uh, updates uh, that we are not uh, happy to give. In some cases, we're glad that um, Tina's doing well and that Wade's a little better, but still uh, um, the test results we hope for Wade will be good, and uh, certainly we hope that uh, Sister Gray will uh, will recover, but we're sorry to make that announcement about her, her problems. Please keep uh, all of these who have been mentioned in your prayers and um, pray fervently that uh, they will be able to uh, recover. Uh, in our last study in Philippians, in chapter 1, we looked at uh, verses 12 through 18 of Philippians 1 as we are going through this epistle in a Sunday night uh, series. And um, in the latter part of that study, of that section, uh, the Apostle Paul, of course, being uh, a prisoner in Rome uh, at this time, spoke of some who pr uh, preached Christ, verse 15, from envy and strife, some from uh, goodwill. But down at verse 18, the last verse in our study last time, uh, he said, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will Rejoice. So that helps us to just briefly gain the context as we continue tonight to look at uh, uh, verses 19 through 26 of Philippians uh, chapter 1, where he continues then in verse 19, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Some translations say salvation. The word is uh, the word for salvation there that is normally used in the New Testament. The New King James translates it deliverance in this case through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And so there has been a question uh, among some, well, what deliverance uh, does Paul uh, write about here? Is he writing about his deliverance, uh, ultimately his salvation, his ultimate salvation? Well, certainly it would be true that his ultimate salvation is going to, uh, uh, is going to work out through the gospel of Christ and his preaching of the gospel and living uh, the gospel. That's certainly uh, true, but whether or not that's what is in his mind as he writes here uh, is another question. Is he speaking of his salvation or his deliverance, uh, in this case, from prison? 
uh, in my view, it seems the immediate context uh, strongly suggests, more strongly suggests, that he's talking about his immediate uh, release uh, or ultimate release from this imprisonment and uh, that he um, has confidence, a confidence that he is going to be, uh, is going to be delivered. And he attributes that confidence to, uh, to two things that we need to consider uh, uh, very carefully and not to overlook at all. He says, through your prayer, first of all. What does that tell us? It tells us, first of all, that the Apostle Paul, as we already well know, uh, was a man of prayer. A man who uh, prayed fervently, who prayed regularly, who admonished uh, others to pray, uh, as in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, to pray without uh, ceasing. Uh, he mentioned in uh, so many epistles, epistle after an epistle, uh, to those to whom he wrote that they, those to whom he wrote, were in uh, his prayers already in the early part of this chapter in Philippians uh, 1. Uh, he has expressed that. I thank God back at verse 3 upon every remembrance of you. Verse 4, always in every prayer of mine making requests for you all uh, with joy. Down at verse 9, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. Paul was a man who believed strongly in prayer. And he also believed in the power of prayer, obviously. It was not an exercise that was an empty exercise. It was not merely the carrying out of a command that he understood that Christians were, uh, were to carry out, but he believed in the effectual working uh, of prayer, uh, of the fervent prayer of a righteous man, as, uh, as James points out. It avails or, or accomplishes a great deal. Paul believed that very strongly. And he believed that prayer has something to do with the providence of God, obviously, in this context, that he was going to be delivered, but a part of that deliverance would not only be God working through his providence to bring about his deliverance, but that they, the Philippian brethren, had a part in that. In other words, their prayers could be effective and helpful to God uh, and that God would hear those prayers and that Paul believed that would make a difference potentially, which tells us that our prayers do make a difference and we should never lose sight of the effectual fervent prayer of righteous people. I believe, I have confidence here, I, I know he's expressing a, a strong confidence here that this will turn out for my deliverance, but notice, through your prayer. But then he says, and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That is the blessings and the encouragement that I receive from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And how do we see, receive those blessings from the Spirit of Jesus Christ today? The Holy Spirit has revealed to us uh, the Word of God. Of course, Paul lived in a time before the Word was in its complete and final form and the Spirit was operating uh, in miraculous ways uh, then, in more direct ways, because it was essential and necessary at that time. But he attributed his ultimate deliverance, the confidence that he had in his ultimate deliverance to the prayers of brethren and to the workings of the Spirit and through the providence of God and the revelation of the Spirit and the strength and courage that he could gain from that. And that the preaching that the preaching of the gospel, you have to go back now to verse, uh, the verses we just alluded to briefly, that the gospel being preached and the effect of that was going to impact potentially his release from prison. 
that he had confidence that all of that was going to work in a positive, in a positive manner. But you know, when it's all said and done in terms of examining the specifics of what Paul was expressing here in his confidence, to summarize it, it simply tells us that the Apostle Paul was a man who had tremendous faith and who believed very strongly that God was going to work things out for his betterment, whether or not that ultimately meant his death or whether it meant his release from prison. And he'll talk more about that or write more about that in the section that we'll continue to study tonight. The Apostle Paul was a positive individual. The Apostle Paul was one who placed his complete faith and trust in the God of heaven. But he continues in verse 20, According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. What a great passage this is. My earnest expectation, my hope, that is my desire and my expectation, because that's what biblical hope is, is that in nothing I shall be ashamed. The kind of shame that comes from disappointment uh, with the failure to fulfill a goal. Paul says, I have confidence that I'm not going to be disappointed in a, in a failure to reach, uh, to reach the goal. I'm not going to be made to feel ashamed, but rather with all boldness, and that's a word that is often used in reference to the apostles. The apostle Paul included a boldness that doesn't mean a brashness, doesn't mean a caustic attitude, but it is a word that simply means with plainness and openness of speech, as always. There's the consistency that the apostle Paul manifested in his life as an apostle of Christ, as a preacher of the gospel. As a Christian, he was always bold, that is, plain and open uh, in his uh, speech. And he makes reference to that in other places in the New Testament. And as we said, it is a characteristic of the apostles that is mentioned more than once. As they stood before kings and other rulers and other authorities, and as they were threatened and as they were beaten and as they were told not to speak anymore in the name of Christ, they confronted those authorities with Christian spirit, but with boldness, plainness, and openness, and said, we cannot help but to preach and teach uh, the gospel of Christ. In Acts 5.29, on one occasion, the words were these, we ought to obey God rather than men. This was the attitude that the Apostle Paul maintained consistently, so that as always, even now, under these circumstances, as a prisoner in Rome, not knowing, but expressing strong confidence, but not absolutely knowing, because other passages, this one included, uh, indicate that he did not know for certain uh, what was going to happen, but he had a strong confidence based upon the good that he thought he could do by being freed and being able to be with the Philippians and with other brethren in the future, as we'll see in just a few moments. But he says, regardless of what happens, I am determined not to be ashamed, not to be disappointed in my determination to magnify Christ, notice this phrase, in my body, in my body. It's been said that's the only place Christ can be magnified. And that's true if you think about it. 
Where is it that Christ is magnified in this world today? Is it in elaborate uh, buildings? Is that how Christ is magnified in elaborate uh, structures that man has uh, built in uh, uh, various icons that are erected to supposedly glorify God and, and Christ. How is, uh, how is Christ magnified? If he's to be magnified, there's only one place really where he can be magnified, and that's in his followers, in their bodies. Think about what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians Chapter 6, verse 19, remember? Oh, no, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Verse 20, for you were bought with a price or at a price. Therefore, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Very, very similar thought to the one that he is expressing here when he says, that Christ will be magnified, magnified, made to be seen to be great, exalted, expanded, made abundantly clear to all those who know me that Christ is in me and that I am in Christ. To magnify and to glorify are very closely associated. They're two different words uh, that are used, but they are very similar. And the only real place, if you think about it, where Christ can be magnified in this world is in the bodies of those who claim to be his followers. That's a sobering thought in a sense, isn't it? That all that I do in my body and in my spirit, I'm to do to the glory and the magnification of God. And how can I do that? By living, obviously as God would have me live to glorify him, or by dying, as God would have me to die and glorify God in that death. You remember what Jesus prayed in what is truly the Lord's Prayer in John 17? Near the end of his earthly existence, he prayed to the Father, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. That's our responsibility. Yea, that's our privilege to spend all of our lives magnifying Christ in our body, glorifying God and Christ in our lives, in our bodies, so that we too may say with confidence near the end of our life, whenever that comes, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. I've glorified you on the earth. That's what Paul is saying here. That's what Paul is saying. And he further emphasizes that. He further emphasizes it in the next verse. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's a very important statement, isn't it? So filled with meaning in so few words. He does not write here, for to me, to live is to be a Christian. Well, you say, well, that's... Isn't that the same thing? Well, perhaps, but perhaps not. Depends on how you, how you look at it. What Paul is writing here is, for to me, to live is Christ. In other words, I have died. I have died. 
And for to me to live, that's Christ living in me. That's how closely associated the Christ and I are, he said. Very similar to Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been what? Crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. I'm not the one who's still alive. I died and Christ took over. Christ took over. Do we fully understand and appreciate the import of that transformation and the impact that the transformation of becoming a Christian is to have in our lives? The Apostle Paul did. And as I've said before, it is not the case that we can say, well, yes, that was the Apostle Paul, though, and I'm, I'm who I am, but that was the Apostle Paul. That's different. It's one thing for him to say, for him to live was Christ, but for, to me, for, uh, for me to say that, should I be able to say that? Should I say that? Absolutely, I should. That's why it is so important for us to understand the relationship that we sustain to this world and to see how important it is that we truly crucify self and that we die to the world. As I've said before, that we just don't get sick of it. We die to it. The Bible doesn't teach Christians to be sick of the world. It teaches Christians to be dead to the world. While continuing to live in it, everything changes. The whole focus of my life changes. doesn't mean, as I've said before, that I don't love my wife, that wives are not to love their husbands, that I don't love my children, etc., that I don't love uh, certain relationships, etc., of course. But I can do all of that without loving the world. I can do all of that and still say with Paul, for to me to live is Christ. For to me to live is Christ. You see, it's when I start to love those individuals or those things to the extent that they affect my devotion and my affection for Christ that I have a problem. Think about the statements that tell us not to love the world. First John 2.15, for example. John does not write, do not love the world too much. He just writes, do not love the world. Period. When Paul in 2 Timothy talked about Demas, who at one time had been spoken of as a faithful disciple, but on that occasion, nearer the time of Paul's death, Demas has forsaken me, Paul wrote, having what? Love this present world too much. That's not what it says. Having loved this present world. The Bible doesn't teach us not to love the world too much. The Bible teaches us not to love the world. Period. But that admonition does not preclude my loving my wife or my children or loving other things. But I've got to make sure, I've got to make sure that the two never mingle in such a way so as to diminish my devotion to Christ or to cause me to compromise my love for Christ. I can't let my own children do that. I dare not let my own children do that. I cannot let my wife do that. You cannot let your wife do that, husbands. Wives, you can't let uh, your husbands do that. Why, think about the passage just occurs to me in 1 Corinthians 7. 
it's a beautiful example, is it not? In 1 Corinthians 7, of the, uh, the unbeliever who is with the believer. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. What is Paul saying? Giving another reason for divorce, scriptural divorce? No. No. But what he is saying to the believer is if your unbelieving spouse is telling you, in effect, you're either going to have to give up Christ or give up me, then you don't give up Christ. You let the unbeliever depart because to you to live is Christ and to die is gain. And since for you to live is Christ, if your unbelieving spouse says, I'm leaving you unless you leave Christ, then you certainly should mourn over that and it'd be heartbreaking. But you would just simply have to say, well, you'll just have to depart. Because for to me, to live is Christ. That's how serious this relationship is. That's how serious it should be. And as far as my view of death is concerned, it should be the same. It should be the same as Paul's. To die is gain. And I should feel that way if I'm 85 years old or older. But if I'm 35, uh-uh. <laughs> Let me get to 85, and then I can start to say to die is gain. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that at any age for the child of God who is living in a way that Christ is living in him, to die at any time is gain. To die is gain. Does that mean we don't sorrow over those we lose before we're ready for them to go? Of course not. We know that. But we also hold on to the fact that death is gain. Death is gain for the child of God. Regardless of when it comes. Oh, what a statement. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But it should be a statement that we too can make along with the Apostle Paul. But then he adds in verse 22, But if I live on in the flesh... This will mean fruit from my labor. I, I will be able to continue to bear fruit if I live on in the flesh, if I am not martyred, if I do not uh, die. But if I were to make the choice, I, I can't choose what? What I would do. I'm in a straight betwixt uh, the two, he's about to say, in verse 23. Because he knows that to die would be far better for him, But to live, he believes, would be far better for these Philippians and for other Christians because, you know, Paul was a very powerful, powerful man for truth. And there were an awful lot of people, no doubt, who really were looking forward to his death. <laughs> they really were eager for him to go because one of the greatest opponents of error would be off the scene when Paul had gone on to his reward. But the Apostle Paul knew that as far as the brethren were concerned, it would be better for him, for them, 
if he could stay. For I'm hard-pressed, he says. I'm in a strait, the King James says, betwixt the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Literally, the phrase is very far better. <laughs> very far better. <laughs> now think about that for a moment. Very far better. How much more, uh, how much more of a superlative could you express than to say very far better, very far better. Paul knew that it would be much more better, <laughs> very far better, the best it could be, the best it could be. Is that how we view the afterlife now? Or does this world, or, or has this world, in many cases, so so captured us, not necessarily you particularly, but so many in the world, has the world so captured so many that it would be virtually unthinkable for them to express what the Apostle Paul is expressing here. But should it be unthinkable for every child of God to fully re realize and, and to fully appreciate, as did the Apostle Paul, that to leave here whenever that comes, is going to be very far better. Very far better. Satan works hard. Satan works hard to get you and me to remove any superlative at all about the afterlife from our vocabulary. And he works very hard to get us to feel so comfortable and so happy with future plans and uh, present programs as well as future plans and relationships here that the idea of departing this life being very far better could start to become more than unthinkable more unthinkable than we think even for the Christian and we dare not let that happen we must we must apply ourselves to spiritual things to the extent that with every passing day we can say with even greater confidence to depart is very far better than being here. Doesn't mean I can't enjoy what I have here and the time I do have because God wants me to as long as I'm enjoying it in the right way and in the proper perspective, keeping all things in the proper perspective. But to think about departing, oh yes, we should be able to say with Paul, it would be very far better. But then, this is where he says, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Verse 24, I understand the need. And then, verse 25, he says, and being confident of this, being confident, having confidence that my remaining here would be better for you than I, I know, I am extremely confident that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. Now, did he know that based on some sort of revelation? I'm not of the opinion that he did, but I'm, I'm of the opinion that he just simply had so much 
realization of the need that existed at that time and their need for him and the good that could be done that he just believed strongly that the Lord was going to spare spare him. But to be completely confident in the sense of having had that revealed, I don't see that that would be uh, the case, that he would continue and be with them or see them again for absolute, with an absolute certainty. And for example, in verse 27, just one verse after the next verse with which we'll close our study tonight, in verse 27 of chapter 1, he writes, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So in that verse, he expresses the possibility that he may not see them. But here he's saying, I know the need, and I feel it so strongly, that I cannot help but believe that the Lord is going to spare me and that we can be together again. For what purpose? Notice this. For your progress and joy of faith. And when he says, for your progress, it simply reminds us that that's what we're to be about, progressing, progressing, progressing in faith, progressing in our faith individually, but progressing in the faith, the system of faith, Christianity itself. And notice something else very important we don't need to overlook, your progress and your what? Joy of faith. How sad it is tonight that yes even in the church there are many who never fully understand or haven't to this point the joy that comes from this book because this book produces faith and the stronger your faith the greater your joy and that's what the apostle Paul affirms right here for your progress and what joy of faith. There's unspeakable joy in the progress that the Christian makes in his or her life and the accompanying joy that is found by spending a great deal of time not just reading this book but studying it and applying it and living it out in our lives. As we grow, we grow in so many beautiful characteristics, one of which is joy. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God and when we have that faith and that faith is stronger every day that we live our joy, our joy will be increased as well. I'm hoping to see you in effect he says that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Christ Jesus by my coming to you again. Paul had confidence that they would enjoy a beautiful reunion of rejoicing and that your rejoicing that you are experiencing now may be even more abundant in Christ because of our ability to be together again. And that should tell us something about the joy that we should experience from being together at every opportunity we have to be together, shouldn't it? And that we should look forward to those times when we can be together to stir one another up 
to love and good works, as Hebrews 10.24 points out, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together because it's an, ob it's an opportunity not only to grow in faith but to encourage one another and to rejoice one with another. Why wouldn't I want to take advantage of every one of those opportunities? But notice something here as we close, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant, but here's the key phrase, in Christ Jesus or in Jesus Christ. In Christ Jesus, in Jesus Christ, there is rejoicing. Therefore, outside of Jesus Christ, there is no cause for rejoicing. Tonight, if you're not in Christ, you cannot rejoice as one who is. But you can leave here tonight rejoicing in Christ Jesus. How? By expressing your faith in Christ through repentance of sin, sweet confession of his name as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and burial and baptism for the remission of your sins. The eunuch went on his way after he had been baptized into Christ doing what? Rejoicing. And you can go on your way tonight rejoicing as one who has put on Christ and as you continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, your joy will increase, the peace that surpasses understanding will be sweeter with every passing day, and the hope, the hope and the anticipation of something that is very far better than anything this life can offer can be yours. If that has been yours, but you know you've turned your back on it and need to come home to your first love and repentance tonight, and confession of sin that's public in your life, we plead with you to do that as together we stand to sing to encourage you.